listening to the Women Encouraged podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Berendrecht. We're all about growing in Christ and being shaped by His Word, so I'm delighted to be sharing with you these discussions with women who love the Lord, love His Word, and are pursuing a life of faithfulness in Him. We're praying that this is a place of blessing and encouragement for you. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, friend. Welcome back to the Women Encouraged podcast. I'm so grateful to get to introduce you to my friend Maggie Combs. She is a delightful writer and speaker, and we here thoroughly enjoy her Instagram skills, too. But today we're talking about being unsuper, resting in the strength of Christ in our role as mother. Maggie is a wife and mom of three boys and author of the book Unsuper Mommy. Today, Maggie and I are going to chat about the way the gospel delivers us from idolizing our expectations and how we should view perfectionism in light of the Word of God. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Women Encouraged and on Facebook at the Women Encouraged page. You can also find show notes on our webpage, womenencouraged.ca, where we post a transcript of the podcast closing devotional. Before I get started with our chat with Maggie, I want to tell you about our wonderful sponsor, Alberta Computers. Deegan and his team at Alberta Computers have been an excellent support for Women Encouraged 2019 and for our podcast, and we are very grateful. You can find them on the web at albertacomputers.com, as well as on Facebook, Alberta-Computers. Welcome, Maggie Combs, to the Women Encouraged podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Will you please introduce yourself and just give us a little snapshot of you and your life and family? Uh, Well, I'm Maggie Combs. I'm a wife of almost 11 years and a mom for seven. So I have three sons. They are four, five, and seven. So if you're keeping track, that's three boys in three years. I live in the southernmost suburb of Minneapolis, but we're kind of in the country, um, just bordering the suburbs, and I actually live on 65 acres of land that I grew up on. My parents so graciously decided to share it with us. So we um, built a house on 10 acres of it and we live right next door to them. And we're kind of rebuilding the farm with them. So we have uh, cows, horses and fainting goats together. So you have this great blog and you've written a book. Can you share with us about all of that fun stuff? Yeah. So on Super Mommy, I started writing when I was really in the trenches. I had a six-month-old, uh, 18-month-old, and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And so first and foremost, I wrote it for me. When I started um, writing it, I felt really over, both overwhelmed by motherhood and really disappointed by motherhood. I was overwhelmed by this constant deluge of expectations and that I needed to manage to be a quote unquote good mom. And I was also really disappointed in myself and my kids and all of these circumstances that were preventing me from being able to achieve that quote-unquote good mom status. So God really used 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10, which is where Paul says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And those verses just helped me realize that this weakness that I was fighting against, that I was avoiding, um, that I hated was actually a good thing because it was an opportunity for God to demonstrate his power through me. So that instead of me trying to glorify my own abilities and um, make myself out to be a really good mom, it made him out to be a really big God when he met me and my weaknesses. So as moms, that means that when we feel really weak, God is strong. When we feel really imperfect, God is perfect. And when we are exhausted, God is powerful. So when we aren't enough as moms, God is still all sufficient. That's really encouraging. And I think I think one of the hard things for a lot of us as we read those those verses about God's sufficiency, we think, oh, God just fills in the gaps. But when we realize that actually, no, God isn't just filling in the gaps for us. He is all sufficient. And so when we come to him with our nothing, he has everything for us. That is so true, Bethany. And I think before motherhood, I had always been a person who is like really capable, not not a perfectionist, but just like I I see what I'm capable of and I can do things that I need to that need to be done. And motherhood made me feel just completely inadequate, completely incapable. So for the first time, you're right. I was bringing God my like all I had was nothing basically to give. And I really discovered the completeness of God's power. Yeah. And so I wrote on Mommy out of the overflow of that because I wanted to share this message with other women and help them find freedom um, from all of the expectations that they had put on themselves, that they had heard from their family, that they had read on the internet. I can totally relate to this, you know, the having three boys in three years and just the intensity that accompanies that lifestyle. It's it is really full. It just feels like you're in over your head. I mean, going from none to one is hard. And then sometimes that transition from one to two feels like, oh, this is totally doable. But for some reason that going from two to three kids, especially if you do it in a really short amount of time, I think that that sometimes we just feel like we got thrown into the deep end and we have no idea what we're doing anymore. Like, how did I even become a mom in the first place? Who let me have kids? You know? Exactly. One of the things that's been so helpful for me is just this realization that God calls us to holiness, not perfectionism, and that the hope of the gospel means we're delivered from idolizing our expectations and idolizing ourselves and idolizing perfectionism. And I would just really love to get your take on all of that. And I was wondering if you would share what you think are some of those bigger expectations and idols that moms today really struggle with. Yeah, I think first we have to, um, first I want to say that expectations for moms have just gotten completely out of control. I think there have always been moms who prioritized different things, but now through the gift of the internet, (laughs) we can see and meet all of the different kinds of moms, not just the moms in our immediate influence. And we are tempted to prioritize everything in our motherhood. And I mean, remember when you're pregnant with your first baby, you basically spend 
nine months creating an unending list of bloated expectations for yourself and for your husband and your baby. You plan it all out. This is exactly what's going to happen. And then motherhood comes. And of course, it looks like nothing that you had expected. And there are all these small obstacles, maybe a small obstacle exactly the size of our child that stands in the way of us being the, the perfect mom like we had planned. And so our expectations for motherhood get bloated into a desire that is so big that we it actually overcomes our desire for God and his plan. I think the reason idolatry feels so intense in motherhood is because it cre- we have this shocking new list of things that we're supposed to care deeply about. And we haven't had any practice submitting those good desires to our desire for God. And so all of our idols originally start as desires. And many of our idols are actually good desires. So let's just, so say you desire sleep for yourself and sleep for your kids. That's a really good desire. Um, Maybe you desire something. Maybe, of course, you desire for your kids to be healthy. That's a good desire. Maybe you desire to make your own homemade baby food. And that's a good desire, too. The problem with these desires isn't that they're bad in and of themselves, but it's their tendency to grow. So like with sleep, you start with a good desire. I want my baby to sleep through the night at 12 weeks. And then your desire becomes an expectation. It says, I know my baby's going to sleep through the night at 12 weeks because I'm fulfilling this perfect plan laid out in this very smart book. And then it becomes a need. I need my baby to sleep through the night at 12 weeks or I'll go crazy and become angry or depressed or an insignificant failure as a mom. So... Paul Tripp says that a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes the ruling thing. Right. I always tell people to imagine a throne in their heart. And when Jesus is on the throne, it's full and your good desires can remain down at his feet, submitted to his sovereign plan. But the second you stop proactively keeping Jesus as the focus of your life, the throne becomes empty and all of your good desires start clawing their way up to the top. They're like, oh, I'll sit there for you. Our unchecked desires become expectations and our expectations become a need. And Paul Tripp again calls the word need the sloppiest, most all-inclusive word in the human language. So true. I know as moms, we've just had an endless list of needs for ourselves and for our kids um, that we've often let become more important than God's plan for us. And so I think one thing is just like keeping a check on your mind and listening to listen to yourself talk. What are you telling yourself you need? And if that's not God, then that that good desire has become an idol in your life. And these good things we, we think that they'll give us what we want, but they never lead to freedom and joy. We can't find our identity in being the crafty mom or the healthy mom or the reading mom or the fun mom or the clean mom. Right. If we try to add any of our good motherhood works to Jesus, it only leads to disappointment and slavery. Jesus plus none of our expectations coming true, none of our good desires panning out still equals freedom because he stands before us and he meets all of God's expectations for us. Yes. Putting our good desires on the throne of our hearts 
we think it's like the easiest fix to our disappointment with motherhood or, mm. or the way we're feeling overwhelmed. But really, it's a get rich quick scheme. It'll never give you what you're looking for in the end, because what your soul really requires is satisfaction in Jesus. And these good desires can never give us that. So what do you feel is the biggest expectation and idol today that moms typically struggle with? You know, I want to say basically everything, but I think the thing we probably idolize the most is motherhood itself, that we often expect that motherhood can give us what only God can give. We look to motherhood for purpose, for meaning, for joy, love, acceptance, belonging, comfort, and ease, all of those things that can be found in God alone. And so um, I've found that ironically, we can't fix these idols by focusing on the idol themselves because the idols are just really symptoms that God is no longer at the center of our hearts. So Paul Tripp says we're always worshiping something and we were created to be in awe of God. But when we don't stay filled up with that awe of God, um, then we begin to worship ourselves and our physical comfort and our physical blessings. And we worship even our roles like motherhood. So the trickiest thing about idolatry is that we can't fix it by focusing on it. We can only solve it by focusing on God. It's so much harder to work to find true delight in God than it is to receive these transient moments of pleasure from the blessings of the world, from a good desire fulfilled, but they don't ultimately lead to soul satisfaction. So I just think that we all need to spend time keeping God the focus of our life, keeping him on the throne of our hearts, and then we will find the satisfaction and happiness that we're searching for. So it's like that desire for your baby sleeping through the night. That's that's really a get rich quick scheme or just your your kid who's been sick. I've had a kid who's been up coughing in the middle of the night for weeks and I have to go in there and get him back to sleep. And I think if he would just sleep through the night, my day would be so much better. That doesn't last. Then that that'll last just a second. But if I think even if he doesn't sleep through the night, my soul can be at rest in God alone. Mm-hmm. That is the kind of lasting promise that will stick with me. Um, that might that will really lead to soul satisfaction in my heart. And that key to really answering our expectations with. Christ, that key to that is really the practice of abiding in him, right? Yeah, yeah. So abiding, just that word always used to make me really nervous. I grew up in the church and I heard it a lot. And it was like one of those beautiful church words. It's like, oh, yes, we should abide in Christ. What does that mean? (laughs) What does that mean? Yes. So um, first, I think I like tried to break it down for myself. What is abiding really? It's just staying close to God. And so I thought about how do I stay close to the most important human relationships in my life? So think for a second with me. Maybe your most important human relationship is your husband or your mom or a friend, that person you really depend upon. So think about how you stay connected to that person throughout the day. I bet that you don't spend 30 minutes with that person in the morning 
or let's be honest, like 15. And then forget about that person until bedtime. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. I bet you reach out and communicate with them regularly. You talk, you text, you email, you even consider that person and their desires when you're making decisions or making plans for your future. So that person's thoughts, feelings, and opinions actually affect the routine of your day. And all of those things are signs of abiding, just sticking close to your special person. So when we make God, if we want to abide in God, we practice those same elements. And I actually have like a little worksheet if you sign up for for my email list, because I need things really broken down and practical. So what God has called me to do is actually tie some rhythms of abiding with him to the regular rhythms or the habits of my day. And this worksheet will help you do that too. So I do things like I memorize scripture at the kitchen sink, because if I'm going to be there longer than two minutes, which is almost every time, yes, (laughs) um, I have time to read my little verse above the sink, repeat it in my head a couple of times. And I do, I, pray to submit my heart to God every morning as I'm making my bed. Cause I wake up every morning again, Paul, Paul Tripp calls it waking up as a functional heathen. It's like, I'm thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about God. I'm thinking about my plans for the day, not his plans. So I like to submit my heart to him as I make my bed. I like to pray for my husband as I'm brushing my teeth or listen to sermons and podcasts while I'm doing laundry. The idea is that you keep plugging in because I just think of your phone. You're probably holding it in your hands right now as you listen to this podcast. And it's probably running out of battery fairly quickly, right? You've got you've got a podcast running. Maybe you're scrolling Instagram at the same time. You get a phone call. It is running all of these different apps at the same time. And everybody knows the more apps you have going the faster your battery drains and moms are like a phone running a thousand apps at once, right? We're the cook, we're the cleaner, we're the nurse, the mediator, the teacher, the jungle gym, the, the preacher, we are everything. And so our energy supplies get depleted really quickly. Everyone knows if you're running all those apps on your phone, you got to keep it plugged in or you're going to have no battery left. So I think of abiding as ways of just plugging in with God throughout my throughout my day so I can stay connected to his power, because like we talked about, my power is so insufficient for the tasks that he's given me. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so great. Because those practical tips, I sometimes we just lose sight of those and we don't know how to connect them with this, you know, ethereal concept of abiding. It's like, oh, what does it mean? How do I do that? And so those are such great tips. And I'll be sure to include in the show notes, the link for your website. So people can sign up there if they'd like to download that sheet of tips. Um, That's so awesome. I, I love following you on Instagram. It's probably like, well, Instagram's my favorite anyway, because it's such a happy place. And same here. I love I watch your Insta stories every day or whenever you have them. You, one of the things you share a lot about, and I love that, that this kind of ties into the whole concept of being unsuper at stuff and having to actually exert ourselves and put effort into things and 
really learn the areas that we need to grow in and trust God to be our sufficiency. But you have been putting a lot of effort, you and your husband, into date night. And it's been such a good example to me and my husband as well. And just I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about just some strategies and tips for date night and what's in, why it's so important to you and just how you're abiding with your husband in that sense. Sure. Well, first, I love friends on the internet. Like making friends is one of my favorite things to do. So if anyone feels like, oh, I feel like she's my friend. I know her. Like, that's right. We are friends. If I saw you in person, you'd be um, But yeah, I talk a lot about date night and marriage um, because I consider... I consider it to be an unsuper marriage, which is just two really imperfect people depending upon the grace of God together. Um, yeah. And to do that, you have to be together. And so <laughs> I know um, people, some people do a great job doing that in the, in the comfort of their own home. I do not do a great job. I'm often distracted by the things of my home. So I find, find, and sometimes date night happens at home too, but I find that taking, making the time and effort to leave our house together um, just gives our soul focus to each other in a way that we often can't achieve at home. But the point is that our marriages are supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. And those two mm-hmm. things are bound together in a perfect union. And when we're always just ships passing in the night, uh, we can't be united. Like we wonder why yeah. we're disagreeing on all of this stuff. How can we be united if we're not spending time together? So um, you can't be one if you don't spend any quality time together. It's just not going to happen. Um, but I think the biggest shift for me was like, I used to look at date night as like, oh my gosh, yay, I get a break from the kids. And what do I want to do? And what would make me feel filled up? And the way God has really changed me is the understanding that date night is not, is about the we, not about the me. So because it's not about me, it's not about getting a, getting a break from my kids. It's not about escaping the things I need to do at home. It's not about this one activity I've been wanting to do for for months. It is about creating an active, redemptive relationship with my husband. And Mm. so then because because it's that I don't come, I don't go full speed ahead with life. I actually stop and mentally prepare for my date night. So I don't go full speed ahead until the moment we leave. I actually take time on our, on the day of our date night to mentally prepare for our time together. I think about things that I'd love to talk about. I um, sometimes take a nap because I'm really tired and I want to be able to give him my best. I pray for my husband that day. I think of ways like, I take each date night as a moment to consider like, what am I, how am I doing as a wife right now? Even like, how can I be growing and supporting him better? I like to tell people that date nights are a place to have fun together. Having fun with your husband will remind you all of those reasons why you love him in the first place. Why you were like, oh yeah, I want to marry this person and spend the rest of my life with him. Um, So I really encourage couples to make sure they have fun together on date night and 
having fun reminds you that um, you really love this person and it helps you to overlook those minor offenses that seem to build up quickly when you have kids. So even if you, it's like you keep, you're finding yourself creating a list of minor offensive, like for me, that's a good a good indicator that I need to stop and spend some focused time with my husband um, because it's hard to give grace to a person you're not connected with. So date night isn't the place to like lay out all of the things that you wish were different in your relationships. Never attack your husband on date night. Okay, ladies. (laughs) It is a fun place to have shared experiences that, that will help you go through the heaviness and challenges of life together, raising children. So I, I talk more to, I I mean, I have like probably over a hundred for sure date night stories saved in the highlight reel of my Instagram now. And so I give a lot of talk about how to prepare our hearts for date night, but also really practical tips for date night and making it actually happen financially, time-wise, all of those things. So Women yeah. go see that for further resources, but I highly encourage mostly that shift in attitude. This isn't about me. This is about we and how can we grow together as a couple through this time? I love that so much. Thanks so much, Maggie. Um, it's such a great opportunity to talk with you. And I'm just going to close out by asking you this question. I try to ask every guest, would you share about something that's been encouraging you lately or something that God has been specifically using to help grow you in your love for him and for his word? Yeah, I've found lately that God is really, it's so strange, but using an understanding of the Trinity to draw me deeper into him. It's like, again, one of those things like abiding, which feels like, oh, this is this weird thing I can't quite understand. And I think in some ways, it's like we aren't meant to fully grasp it. We um, we can't in our human capacity, but we know that it's there and we can learn about it in the scripture. And so I've been um, just looking at the different, like just taking note in my Bible study of times when God talks about when it actually says God, the father, when it actually says Jesus Christ, when it actually says the whole, the spirit and saying, like, okay, what is, what is that member of the Trinity doing? And so it's added just a different, a different depth of understanding for me of who God is when I read the Bible, looking for those things. That is so cool. I love that. I think it's really neat to get to approach scripture with, with fresh eyes, right? And when we come like, looking for what God wants to tell us about himself. That's so exciting. Well, thank you again, Maggie, so much for joining me today and for just sharing your insight and your encouragement for the listeners of the Women Encouraged podcast. We're so grateful for you and we'll really look forward to connecting with you more on Instagram. 2 Corinthians twelve nine, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Whatever stage of life you're in, you know the necessity of God's sufficient grace. We may be tempted to believe, though, that His grace is like a thin veneer over what we're able to do on our own. But His grace accomplishes more than simply shining up our best efforts. It works in us to achieve what God desires to produce in and through us. 
His grace provides us with unfailing, satisfying strength, the kind that contents our hearts and wards off our anxieties. Charles Spurgeon gave a sermon in April of 1876 on this passage, and he beautifully expressed the truth of Scripture and shared the sweetest encouragement, which I'll close with. He said, quote, At this moment and at all moments which shall ever occur between now and glory, the grace of God will be sufficient for you. This sufficiency is declared without any limiting words, and therefore I understand the passage to mean that the grace of our Lord Jesus is sufficient to uphold thee, sufficient to strengthen thee, sufficient to comfort thee, sufficient to make thy trouble useful to thee, sufficient to enable thee to triumph over it, sufficient to bring thee out of it, sufficient to bring thee out of ten thousand like it, sufficient to bring thee home to heaven. Whatever would be good for thee, Christ's grace is sufficient to bestow. Whatever would harm thee, his grace is sufficient to avert. Whatever thou desirest, his grace is sufficient to give thee if it be good for thee. Whatever thou wouldst avoid, his grace can shield thee from it, if so his wisdom shall dictate. O child of God, I wish it were possible to put into words this all-sufficiency, but it is not.